Well, my friends, today we are in the book of Matthew. Would you please turn there in your Bibles to the book of Matthew? We are starting a brand new study together as a body of believers. Uh, Our goal here at Calvary is to make our way verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, And our tendency has been essentially this. Uh, We we study a couple of books in in maybe the Old Testament, two, three books, depending on the size, and then we we head over to the New, we do a few, then we, we just sort of go back and forth in that regard. And so... We just finished up a couple of studies in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah, and now uh, we're going to take some time, we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, 28 chapters in the Gospel, so it'll probably take us uh, a little while uh, to get through there, but uh, I do think that the Lord will bless. Uh, We have this slide here that we've thrown up here. That's essentially what our theme is going to be as we make our way through, Uh, and that is falling in love with Jesus. I, I think we could maybe put in parentheses all over again, because I suspect in in a group of people here that attend church or whatever, many of you have probably, you had that sort of period in your life where you came to discover who Jesus is, and you're like, this guy is awesome. And and in a sense, you you fell in love with him. And and some of you I know, you're you're just sort of, you're coming out with a friend or whatever it may be, and you're trying to discover these things. And my goal for all of us is when, when all is said and done, as we are looking at this person, Jesus, that each of us will just sort of walk away and be like, man, he is remarkable. And our hearts would sort of swell once again uh, for the one that loves our souls. And so I'm looking forward to that opportunity. That has been my prayer. My prayer has essentially been this for us during this study. And and that is whether we've never read the Gospel of Matthew or we've gone through it once a year for the last 20, 30 years. My prayer is that God will sort of supernaturally give us the ability to kind of observe these things almost as if it was our first time. And that we're just sort of that guy that's sitting off on the side of the, the streets of Galilee that's just sort of watching and looking and saying, who is that guy? And gradually we're being drawn in to get closer and closer and closer to him until soon we realize I'm one of his disciples. I'm a follower of Christ. And so that's my prayer. And I would encourage you, please be praying for that as well. I hope you do pray for us as a church um, regularly, consistently, if not daily, and certainly weekly that you're lifting up us as a body of believers, that God's Holy Spirit would be ministering what He wants to minister to us. Well, as I said, we're going to be going through the book of Matthew. Now, Matthew is in the New Testament. There are 27 books that are in the New Testament, and each of those books, or, well, not each of them, but those 27 books are divided into sort of genres. There's different styles of writing for each of those books, and there's essentially three. There are historical books, There are also didactic books. They're teaching books. We call those the epistles. And then there is the book of prophecy. That is the book of Revelation. So there's different styles of uh, writing uh, scattered throughout the New Testament. Four of the historical books, there's five total, four of the historical books are what we call the Gospels. And the Gospels, or the word Gospel, it's a word which means the good news. So these are those books which tell, if you will, the good news. They're the story of Jesus. And so I'm excited about getting into them because I love Jesus. But even as a follower of Jesus, sometimes I find in my walk, I'm not so much a follower of Jesus as I am a follower of Christianity. Have you come to discover that? You sort of know all the things, you know, don't go there and don't do this and make sure you read that and make sure you have a quiet time. Don't forget church on Sundays. And you sort of become a follower of Christianity instead of a follower of him. And so it's a good, healthy reminder for us to come back to the Gospels to see Jesus. And that's why I think it's good for us 
to sort of look at them with fresh eyes. Where, so we leave and we say, man, that Jesus is something else. And so that's my prayer. Now there's four Gospels. When people have asked, why four books? Why not just write one big book? Why have four separate Gospels? And at face value, you could look at it, and it might appear as if it's just a matter of, it's going to be repetitive. You know, I just read the one, why read another one? Or whatever. But the reality is, with the four Gospels, they, they really do serve as four different witnesses, each with a slightly different vantage point, and each one with slightly different insights. Now, each of the Gospels were written with a different reader in mind, and that's significant. Because the author had a different reader in mind, he was going to focus on certain things. So, you're going to discover in each of these books, and I'll try and point it out in, as in our study of Matthew, how it's unique compared to some of the other Gospels, but you're going to discover different styles of writing are going to be manifested, different themes, different points of emphasis, You'll discover that some writers add more insight into an account than others who might not even take, make any notice of it at all. And the beauty for us as students of the Word of God is to discover that each of these Gospels amplify one another, but they never contradict one another. And I think that's significant. Because what they do then is they give us a full picture of the Savior more so than perhaps one solitary Gospel could have done. Now, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those first three Gospels, you'll discover, if you would just take some time, but it has to be like a, a, like a real short block of time. Like if you were to take a weekend and read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, excuse me, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would discover that there are a whole lot of similarities in those three Gospels. What you'll discover is that John is quite a bit different, it seems. Again, nothing contradicts it, but John chooses to focus on different things for a particular reason. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very much similar. Many of the stories that are in one are always found in the other, or one other, or two of the others. Does that make sense? Was that clear? All right. And so since those three books are so similar, they are oftentimes called the synoptic gospels. The word synoptic essentially means the same viewpoint, same vantage point. And so they're very, very similar to one another. Now it's believed that Mark was written first, even though it's listed second. Mark was written probably around the year 55 AD. Jesus died roughly around 33 AD. Mark was written probably around 55, Matthew around 58, and Luke around 60. But the Gospel of John was written around the year 85. So John was written some 25 years later by one of his apostles, one of his face-to-face -face disciples, who it seems is looking and saying, you know what, 25 years has gone by. Really, 40 years have gone by. There are some things that I need to focus on and highlight because we're forgetting those things. And so that was the, sort of the intent of the Gospel of John. Now, although Mark was written first, Matthew has almost always been listed first. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's almost hard to say, isn't it? Mark, John, Matthew, Luke. Like, it's a tongue twister. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one of the reasons why Matthew is oftentimes listed first it's because for many years it was thought to be the first of the Gospels written. Modern scholarship has pretty much revealed that Mark probably came a few years earlier. But nonetheless, tradition is tradition, and so Matthew often was listed first. Another reason why Matthew is often listed first is because it, it sort of became a, a congregational favorite. So in a day when very few people would have had a Bible of their own, 
when the people got together to read, if you will, the Gospel of Matthew, they would have had one text. And whether it be Matthew, Mark, Luke, whatever it may be that the pastor would teach from, Matthew was written in such a way that sort of lent itself to congregational reading and memorization. And so people became very familiar with it, and it was one that was very appealing to them as a congregation. It became a fan favorite, if you will. A third reason, and I think this is the most significant reason why Matthew is often listed first, is that it was by the design of God. So when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, and you realize some things about it, you come to discover that you know Matthew is the perfect book to begin the Gospel. Because Matthew has a very Jewish flavor to the book. And it, it serves, if you will, as a perfect book that is transitioning from the Old Testament Jewish Scriptures to sort of this New Testament, in many ways, Gentile-populated faith. The majority of people will go on to be Gentiles that serve and, and follow the Lord. And so, in that sense, Matthew becomes sort of this bridge between those two, the Old Testament and the New. As I said, it has a very strong Jewish flavor. The reason that is, is because Matthew was writing to Jews. They were his primary audience. Certainly anyone is allowed to read it. You can read it if you're not a Jew. But his primary audience was the Jew. And his purpose, and if you're writing anything down, this is a good thing to write down. Matthew's purpose in writing this book is to demonstrate to his Jewish audience that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy and the long-awaited expectation of the nation of Israel. Okay? His purpose is to demonstrate to his Jewish audience that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy and the long-awaited expectation of the nation of Israel. That is that Jesus is the Messiah. And throughout the book, Matthew is going to, show, is going to show events in Jesus' life that are the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. So repeatedly throughout the book, you're going to hear phrases like this. This is repeated ten times in the book of Matthew. Slightly different in your version, perhaps, whatever, but roughly like this. Ten times it says that it might be fulfilled. Fourteen times it says, this is that which was spoken. Six times it says, and this was said. The idea referring back to the Old Testament. And so again and again, references back to the Old Testament. There's 129 references to the Old Testament that are made in the book of Matthew. That's more than the other three Gospels combined. 129 Old Testament references. And those references are taken from every section of the Old Testament. That is, they're taken from the Law, they're taken from the Prophets, and they're taken from the Psalms. And so it is a book that is filled with citations and allusions from the Old Testament. Of our 39 uh, new, uh, Old Testament books, I should say, of our 39 Old Testament books, 25 of them are specifically either cited or alluded to in the Gospel of Matthew. So it's a very Jewish book. The book of Matthew makes reference to the holy city, the holy place in the holy city, the son of David, the kingdom of heaven. The book of Matthew repeatedly makes reference to the fulfillment of prophecy, to Jewish customs, and to the Jewish prophets. And every time those things are referenced, there's very little explanation about them that you might do. And so there was this prophet Jeremiah. He lived a long time. Like an explanation, he lived a long time ago. He lived in Jerusalem. He talked to Jewish people right before the Babylon. You would explain it to someone who might not know. But because he's writing to Jewish readers, he knows they're going to know who Jeremiah is, what the holy place is, what the son of David is referring to. 
And so each of those things are referenced with no explanation, which is, uh, helps us to understand that who he's writing to, and that is to Jews. So again, Matthew's goal is to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And to do that, he's going to have to prove for them from their Bible so that he can convince them. And that's why he references it as much as he does. He references what we call the Old Testament. Now there's one final point I want to make in sort of our intro, and that's about the author. The author, we know that the audience is Jewish, the author is also Jewish. The author of this book is the one for whom the book has been named. So Matthew is the author of this book. He didn't do that, somebody else did later down the line. It was a letter from Matthew, people just started calling him Matthew. I can't imagine he would have said, I'm going to write a book and call it Matthew. Or, you know, he wouldn't do that. Um, but that's what it became known as. This is what we know about Matthew. According to the listings that are provided in Matthew chapter 10, Mark chapter 3, and Luke chapter 6, Matthew was one of the 12 apostles. So as one of the 12 apostles, this is a guy that would have traveled with Jesus just about daily everywhere Jesus went during his earthly ministry. So he would have been close to the scene. He would have had intimate knowledge of the events and the teachings that he's going to record for us. So we know that about him. Secondly, we also learn from the Gospels, Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5, that Matthew was a Levi man, or excuse me, a, a Jewish man that served as a tax collector for the Roman government. His real name is Levi, by the way. Uh, that's where the Levi man came from. But he was a tax collector for the Roman government. And that means he was a representative of the Roman Empire whose job it was to collect taxes from the Jews on behalf of that empire. And as I mentioned not too long ago, tax collectors were not very well liked by the Jews. They were seen as sellouts. They were seen as cheats. They were seen as liars. That people that would benefit, do whatever to benefit themselves, even throw their own people under the bus and, and things like that. And that's this guy here, Matthew. As a tax collector, we know that Matthew had to have been a well-educated man. He would have been able to read and write and speak in multiple languages, certainly in Hebrew, in Greek, and in the language of the Jewish people of the day, Aramaic. And he would have had the ability to communicate with whomever came up to the tax booth in whatever language was necessary for that particular day. So he was a well-educated man. And as a well-educated man, his education, it would have set him apart from pretty much the rest of the 12 apostles that were around him. Most of those guys were laborers. Most of those guys were fishermen. In that day, those guys really necessarily weren't taught to read and write anything beyond, you know, kind of the basics or whatever. And so Matthew would have really stood out amongst that crowd. And that's probably the reason that he becomes sort of the scribe of the group jotting certain things down. Anybody here know how to write? Oh, I do. You know, all right, take the pen. You're the writer or whatever. And so he would do that. There is some evidence to suggest that before Matthew wrote this book, that he had actually put into a notepad of sorts something that became known as the collections of the sayings of Jesus that was written some 10, 15 years before the book of Matthew was actually formulated. And that probably Matthew even referenced that as he wrote this particular gospel. So, he was sort of the scribe of the group. And the last point that I want to make is this before we jump into the text. It's important to note, I think, that Matthew wasn't always known as the name Matthew. 
In fact, the Gospels of Mark and Luke really don't even refer to him as Matthew. They refer to him as Levi. And it's likely that this fellow was born Levi and then he either took or was given a new name after he became a disciple of Jesus. And that is the name Matthew. Matthew means the gift of Jehovah. And Matthew was not a guy that all his life knew the Lord, perpetually knew the Lord. Matthew didn't grow up in Sunday school. Matthew didn't, wasn't groomed from a young age to someday be an apostle and a gospel writer. Instead, what we discover about this little Levi fella is that Levi at some early age had chosen a path for himself that would ultimately earn him the description in the eyes of others as sinner. That's the direction he, tried, he chose to go with his life. Essentially saying, I don't care what you think about me. You don't live with me when I go home. I live with me when I go home. And when I go home, I want what I want. I want money. I want a nice home. I want comfortable living. I don't care what anybody else. Call me a sinner. Do whatever you want to. Now pay up. And he would rip people off. And so he had this, if he was like any other tax collector of his day, he was a liar, he was a cheat, and he abused his position of authority for selfish reasons. That's our Gospel writer. Matthew would have been a man that would have lived exclusively for himself. You could make this statement that he was a guy that sold his eternal soul for the temporal pleasures of this world, in a sense. All right? He was a man that was consumed with his love of money. And the Scripture says that the love of money is the root of all evil. So he was a sinner of a guy. Now, with that in mind, it's important to remind ourselves of this, that despite all of that junk, in his past, and as a matter of fact, in the story, in his present, Jesus went and found him. Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 2, Luke chapter 5, it tells us that he was just going about another day of earning a buck or whatever, sitting at the tax booth, and that Jesus saw him, went over to him, stopped by his booth, and he said, Levi, come follow me. And so here is a guy that knew the wonder of the Gospel. He's a guy that knew what it was to be a hopeless sinner where he had pretty much given up on his ability to have a relationship with God and certainly all of those around him had done so as well. And yet, despite that, he knew what it was to be sought out by God and to be forgiven by God. Matthew was a guy that knew what it was to have his life transformed because he had received the Gospel. And because he had received the Gospel, he could now essentially preach that Gospel, tell that story of the Gospel to others as well. And so he sits down and he records a document that would, he would use, that would be used, I should say, to introduce others to the Messiah. Let me just take a break. Is it hot in here? Can we hook up the air, Scott, or somebody? Yeah, it's really hot. Sorry, Lori, sit in the hall. Somebody fix that here. All right, just twist them as low as they go. 45 is good. 45.50 for those of you. All right. Did anyone touch that one? Twist it. Twist it, sister. Yes. Remember that band? It probably is. You can shut it if you want, but we don't pay for the air, so turn it down low. All right, here we go. All right, now, let's go on here to verse uh, 1. We're gonna, we were just studying Genesis. Started our first study in the book of Genesis on uh, Wednesday night, and we did two verses in our first study. So my plan today is to go a little further than two verses. But let's take a look at verse 1 now that we're about 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in. It says this. He begins, Matthew begins, it says, The book 
of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And now he's going to go on here in this chapter, and he's going to start to list a bunch of names. Now, I know we just come out of the Old Testament. I know we've looked at a number of genealogies in the Old Testament. Some of you are probably thinking, oh, no, not again. Don't worry. The whole book isn't like this. It's only the first 16 verses in which we have a genealogy or a listing. And the reason why it's here, one person described it as being indispensable. You have to have this list here. And the reason why we have this list is because Matthew's goal is to prove to his readers that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's going to do that in a variety of ways as we move through the book. But it really doesn't matter what he says after this particular chapter if this particular chapter can't be proven. And what I mean by that is this. You could have all of this other stuff that Jesus did, and he's a remarkable guy, and wow, look at him. He's fantastic. But if he doesn't have the pedigree, the genealogy, then he can't be the Messiah. And so if Matthew is going to write to some Jewish folks to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, they're essentially going to say to him, he anticipates it, yeah, I don't want to hear it. Show me the records first. And so he does, and he begins to write down the genealogy of Jesus. It's going to lay the foundation for all that will follow. Because unless Matthew can demonstrate that Jesus is the legal descendant of King David, then it will be impossible for that Jesus to be the Messiah King of Israel. So Matthew has to start with the genealogy. Now if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that there are two different genealogies that are listed of Jesus in the Gospels. There's one here in Matthew. There's another one in the Gospel of Luke. Opening pages of the Gospel of Luke. And if you've looked at them, if you've taken the time to kind of put them side by side, one of the things that you would discover is that they're different. And you say, well, wait a minute. Same guy, how can he have different genealogies? Well, there's a variety of ways. Let me point out some of the differences between the two. Number one, Matthew is said to be descending. That is, it starts with the great-great-great-great-grandfather and works its way, if you will, down to Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, starts with Jesus and in a sense works its way up to the great-great-great-great-grandfather. So that's one difference. A second difference is that Matthew traces the genealogy to Jesus all the way back to King David through Jesus' adopted father. So the genealogy is really the, the genealogy of Joseph. Jesus' adopted father. Luke, on the other hand, also traces it back to David, but doesn't go through Joseph's line, instead goes through Jesus' mother's line, Mary. And both of those go back a number of generations until they both end up at King David. And so we'll look at that as well. There's a reason for that. That's done to, not only, to show that not only did Jesus have the legal right to inherit the throne, that is, he was a son of David through David's son, Solomon, but he also had the appropriate bloodline as well. That is, that he was a son of David through a different son, a guy by the name of Nathan. We're going to talk about that a little more later. And there's one final difference between the two genealogies. The genealogy in Matthew lists 42 generations. The genealogy that is in Luke lists 77 generations. That's a big difference, isn't it? Now you can understand five, six here. These people had kids earlier than those kids or whatever, but 35 more generations is a little peculiar. And the reason why that is, is Matthew employed a technique that was common in Jewish liter literature. Remember, 
he's writing to Jews, it was common in Jewish literature to essentially skip generations. So where it says so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, we would say is the grandson of so-and-so or the great-grandson of so-and-so. But his point is just to kind of make his way through and get to kind of those key landing places in the genealogy. And so that's why there's so many less um, lines, if you will, generations in Matthew's genealogy. So again, looking at verse 1, it says, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, again, first verse, but there's four things that we can learn in this verse. And I think they're all significant. The first is we learn who the central figure is. Remember, I'll ask you, what was Matthew's goal in writing this Gospel? That proved that Jesus is the Messiah, right? That's the goal. Write it down if you have to. So the first thing he does is establish who the central figure of this story is going to be, Jesus. So it begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. That's his name. Christ, that you see there, is his title. The son of David, that's listed, that's his claim to the throne. And then the son of Abraham is that he takes his place in the line of the Jewish patriarchs. All four of those are important. I want to go through them somewhat quickly with each of them. His name. His name is Jesus. Now despite the fact that many today use his name as a curse word, I think you would agree with me that there is no sweeter name than the name Jesus. I've been in a variety of settings where someone is like, Jesus! And they're cursing. And you're like, ooh. And you feel it. But then you're in another setting. Maybe you don't know everybody that is around you. But you hear somebody say the name Jesus in a way that you know they know him. And your heart just swells within you. You're like, isn't it the most greatest name you've ever heard? And you're already connected with that person because of the sweet name of Jesus. More importantly than it's a sweet name is this. The Scripture says this, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so, the name Jesus. Secondly, we learn His title. Jesus Christ. Now, most people think Christ is His last name. The reality is Christ is not a name at all. Christ is a title. That's why I personally, I almost always, I try to say Jesus the Christ to differentiate the idea of a last name and a title. The word Christ it is an English word which comes from a Greek word, which is what the New Testament was written in, the Greek word Christos. And so we get sort of an English translation of that, the word Christ. Its English-Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament is the word Messiah. So Christ and Messiah mean the exact same thing. And those two terms mean anointed one. And so to say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that Jesus is the one sent from heaven, anointed by God, to accomplish the purposes of God. And we know, because we've read the rest of the book, that the purposes of God is, is or are to save people from their sins. And for generations, the Jews were looking for one that would come and save the Jewish people. And so here is Matthew at the very start saying that Jesus is the one. It's all good. It doesn't matter. It's okay. Matthew's contention is this, that Jesus is the anointed one. And so he calls him Jesus the Christ. Third point that we have here from this opening verse, he, we also learn that Jesus the Christ is the son of David. Now the Old Testament prophesied that a son of David would ascend to the throne of David 
and rule as God's Messiah. That's repeatedly found in the Scripture. I'll give you an example. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Speaking to David, it says, And when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I, God speaking, will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish my throne of his kingdom forever. Now Solomon partially fulfilled that, but he didn't fulfill the forever part of that. And so this is a messianic prophecy that someone from the line of David, someone from the royal line of David, would sit upon the throne, if you will, forever as God's Messiah. And again and again, reference is made throughout the Old Testament that God's Messiah, the Son of David, would come and rescue His people. And so, from the very opening line of the book, Matthew is essentially saying to his readers, he's not pulling any punches, he's saying, I'm putting all my cards out there on the table, I'm going to write a book that's proving that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. That's his goal. That's his objective. I think he accomplishes it. I'll ask you what you think when we come to the conclusion of this particular book. But he says, I'm writing a book about Jesus, and I will prove to you from the Old Testament that he is the Messiah. And then finally, one last thing we learn in the first verse, that Matthew refers to him as the son of Abraham. Now we read the record of Abraham in the book of Genesis. It begins in Genesis chapter 12. And just like the author of this book that we're studying, the book of Matthew, Abraham was a guy that God came and found, that God sought out and found him and essentially said to him, Abraham, just like he said to Matthew, come and follow me. And Abraham does. It's a remarkable account that we read in the book of Genesis there, that Abraham is picked up, he he picks himself up, it's not like heavenly or anything, he picks himself up, he and his wife, his nephew, whom he's raising it seems, as his son, uh, his father is with him as well, and they go and they begin to make their way to the place that, the land that God would show him in the future. This promise that God had given them. And he went out, the scripture says, not knowing where he was going to go, but he went out because God told him to do so. He went out in faith, the scripture says. Abraham is rightly called the father of faith because we learn of his life, the same thing that is true in each of our lives, And that is this, that Abraham believed God and God credited that belief to him as righteousness. The same thing that he does in our lives as well. And so Jesus is called a son of Abraham. Now if you want to establish a person's credentials in the mind of a Jew, then you would demonstrate that they're of the lineage of Abraham. Because it's through the lineage of Abraham that God in what has become known as the Abrahamic Covenant promised that he would bless all the nations of the earth. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And if you're a student of the Scripture that you know, it's not only through Abraham's line, but specifically it's through Abraham's son's line, Isaac, and specifically it's through Isaac's son's line, Jacob, and specifically it's through Jacob's son's line, Judah, and so on and so forth. So as you study through the New Testament, what you keep seeing is this line keeps getting narrowed down, narrowed down, narrowed down, until there is one, the narrow line, which would bring us the Messiah, Jesus. And that's what Matthew's genealogy is seeking to prove. All right, verse 1. There you go. Now let's jump into the genealogy and make our way through. It says, Now Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, 
Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, if you think about the messianic line, or the genealogy of the Messiah, I think the temptation would be to think that that must have been a remarkable group of holy people. If they're going to be in the Messiah's line, this must be sort of the cream of the crop of the righteous people that have walked the earth. The reality is, as I'm going to attempt to show you, is that the Scripture is very, very clear. doesn't hide anything from us. It's very clear to point out that this group of people was a pretty motley crew of people, to say the least. So look at the list with me. Let me draw your attention to a few of the names. In verse 2, you have Jacob listed there. The Scripture reveals to us that Jacob was a conniver that deceived his father and stole the birthright from his brother. He's in the line of Jesus. Verse 3 tells us there's a guy by the name of Judah. You see that there, Judah? Judah impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And those two are both included in the family line of Jesus here. Verse 5 tells us about a woman named Rahab. We learn in the Bible that she was a prostitute. Verse 5 also tells us about a woman named Ruth. Ruth, we learn, is a foreign proselyte, a convert to the faith, which means that she grew up as a polytheist, worshiping and serving all sorts of foreign gods. David, in verse 6, is listed as an adult, well, we know he is, I should say, an adulterer and a murderer. He's in the family line. Let me continue the list. It goes on. It says, uh, and David fathered, was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So we have some more names here. Rehoboam, verse 7. You see Rehoboam there. The Bible tells us essentially about Rehoboam. He was a stubborn, arrogant son of Solomon. And that his stupid decision, my friend, we're not allowed to say that. My wife was here earlier. We're not allowed to say that in my house, stupid. But that's really what it is. We're not at my house. We're at the pulpit here. He made a stupid decision which forever divided the nation of Israel because he was a stubborn, arrogant, arrogant dummy of a guy. Abijah, verse 7, tells us. We read in 1 Kings about Abijah that he continued in the sins of his ancestors. That means that he worshipped and served the foreign gods, despite the fact that he was king of Israel. He was a polytheist. Verse 8, Joram is listed. We learn in the Bible that Joram was a weak king who was easily influenced by his idolatrous wife. And we also learn this about the guy, that to secure his place as the king, he murdered six of his brothers and many of his nephews, their children, so that he would eliminate any threat to the throne. He's in the line of Jesus. In verse 8, there's a guy by the name of Uzziah that is listed there. We learn that Uzziah unlawfully entered the temple because in his pride, he thought that the rules didn't apply to him. I'm the king. I can do anything I want. So he goes into the temple, which only the priests were allowed to go into, And the scripture says he was struck with leprosy and he had to live out the remainder of his days 
in isolation. We read about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. I mentioned earlier to you that Matthew skipped certain generations in this particular genealogy. One of those skipped uh, generations is found in verse 11. And that's a guy that comes between Josiah and Jeconiah. You see those guys listed there? Well, the guy that comes between them, so rather than being the son of Josiah, Jeconiah is really the grandson of Josiah. The guy that goes in between there, the father of Jeconiah, was a guy by the name of Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, the Scripture tells us, <coughs> both in Second Chronicles as well as in the prophecy of Jeremiah, that he was so wicked that a curse was pronounced on him, on his life, and it, the curse was on his line that no blood descendant would ever sit on the, the throne again, the throne of David again. So specifically, Jeremiah 36.30 says, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. That's a problem, isn't it? Because for a thousand and some years, I don't know the exact math, but for hundreds of years, there's been a prophecy that one of David's royal line, one of his descendants, would be the Messiah. Jehoiakim is one of those descendants. Now a curse is pronounced on him by the prophet of God saying none of your descendants are ever going to sit on the line. We're done with you. You see, that's a problem. And no doubt, when Satan heard this, he was like, yay! Rejoicing in the fact that he had thwarted the plan of God, but he didn't. Let me show you a couple things here. In Jeremiah 36.30, where it says, and he shall have none to sit on the throne, that phrase in the Hebrew, it doesn't really come off in the English, but that phrase in the Hebrew is specifically designed to imply physical blood descendants. Okay? Physical blood descendants. Descendants, And so again, here's Satan rejoicing, thinking he thwarted the plan of God. But imagine Satan's surprise when he would learn that God's foreordained plan was that there would be a legal descendant who would be the Messiah, but that the legal descendant would be born by virgin birth. And that is what I mean by that is he would be a legal descendant, but not a blood descendant of the royal line. God is really cool, isn't he? The way he kind of just navigates all these things and it's going to be good, don't worry. You know, I got it all taken care of. And so that's why we have in the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, one is his legal descent back to the throne of David. One is his blood descent back to the, the great-grandfather, if you will, David. So we got a motley crew here, don't we? I know some of you are thinking of the band. Some of you older folk. Um, Here's the reason why I'm sort of airing out the dirty laundry of these people. I hope if I ever make a genealogy, people don't go talking about, you want to hear what Greg did? I'll tell you what Greg did. All right, but they're in the Bible, so I'm going to share it with you. The reason why I'm kind of airing their dirty laundry is this, because this is not a list of who's who of holy living. These are people with some serious backgrounds. And you know, it's interesting to me, as I look around the room and as I look into the mirror, one of the things I realize about each of us as well, we are not a list of who's who of holy living either. You know, some of us in this room, I've come to know most of you, many of you. Some of us are former drunks. Some of us are former drug addicts. A number of us have been formerly convicts. Some of us are, were abusers. Almost all of us were proud and arrogant, stubborn and selfish. Some of us, we were good kids, but we were self-righteously religious. 
all of us in this room had rebellious, we were rebellious at heart. And we were uninterested in the ways of God. As the Scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray. That verse describes this group of people perfectly. Every one of us like sheep have gone astray. So think about that. If the descendants of Jesus were to throw sort of a family reunion, each one of us would fit right in at that party. You know, my family, we have family reunions every now and again. Somebody gets motivated and says, you know, let's do something to get everybody together. And it's a motley crew, I'll be quite frank with you, that, that comes to the Downs family, Bombberry, that's my mom, family reunion. And I, my kids are like, where are we going? I said, just go. Keep your head down. We'll get out of there in two, three hours. You know, you should be okay. You should be safe. Don't make eye contact. You know, things like that. It's a rough crowd. All right, we got a past. And, and quite frankly, I have a past as well, and each one of you do. And as I look at the genealogy of Christ, it, sometimes I look at it and I think, you know, this is really strange that Jesus' family line would be as checkered as it is. It, it seems to me improper somehow that you would take the holy Messiah and have him come as a descendant of some of this riffraff, you know, with a history of sin and rebellion. And that's kind of how I look at it at first glance. It just doesn't seem appropriate. But the more we stop and consider, Really, this is the most appropriate thing that we should expect in the Scripture. It shouldn't surprise us at all that his family line would have a passed away it does because this is the very reason that Jesus came. To seek and to save sinners. And the genealogy of Jesus is an indication to us of what his earthly ministry is going to be all about. That the Son of Man would become, take on flesh so that he could seek and to save those that are lost. It wasn't too long ago, it was about a month ago that I was sharing with you the story of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was another tax collector, much like Matthew. And just like Matthew, he came to know Jesus as his Savior and Lord. Now, like Matthew, Zacchaeus was a dirty, rotten scoundrel of a man. That he sold out everyone else so that he could make a buck. Zacchaeus was self-consumed. He was a power abuser. He got rich off of the suffering of others. And what do we learn that Jesus does with him? The Scripture says that Jesus went and found him. Isn't that remarkable? That's what Jesus does. He comes to seek and to save the lost, even if they are members of his own family. Now the subtitle of our study of the book of Matthew, again, as I said earlier, it's to fall in love with Jesus. And that's my prayer. My hope for this study is that regardless of our background, regardless of our past, regardless of things that we may have done, that each of us would come to realize, maybe all over again, but that we would come to realize that there is a Savior that looks past all of those things so that He can get to you and say, come follow me. And my prayer is that each of us would fall in love with Jesus and be His followers all over again, if you will. Now, if I had to choose a theme for the book of Matthew, we just did the inductive Bible study at the men's prayer breakfast, right, Jim? And I'm going to violate a principle of the inductive Bible study. We just did this. It's a method of studying the Word of God, digging into the Word of God, observing, interpreting, applying what you're seeing there as well. And one of the things they have you do is to take the section that you're looking at and pull out a theme verse. But the theme verse is supposed to come from that section. And so I'm going to give you a theme verse for the entire book of Matthew, but it's not in the book of Matthew. It's actually in the book of Luke. So I'm pretty sure I'm violating the method. But that's okay. Jim said it was okay. And he gave me, gave me absolution. 
This is from Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And I think that this is really the verse that, in, in my opinion, more aptly speaks, if you will, to the mission of Christ. All the other verses are the specifics of this verse, if you will. And Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Isn't that awesome? That's what He came to do. This list would have been a shocker to the Jewish people. Now, they knew the history of these guys, but to put it all on paper in front of them, for them to look at, it would have been a shocker for them because technically, it met, if you will, the legal standards necessary for the Messiah, that He would be from the racial line of Abraham, the legal line of David. But when they see all of those names and think about all of those backgrounds, in their minds, so many of the Jews would have said, this can't be the line through which the Messiah would come. Look how unholy it is. And the reality is that this was the exact family line that the Lord chose to work through. You know, I wonder if you, and sometimes me, I do, I'll be honest with you, feel this way. Sometimes I wonder if my past or my background precludes me from being used by the Lord. And for some people I know, even coming to the Lord. Well, if you know what I've done, you wouldn't even bother sharing the Gospel with me because you would know that He would never receive someone like me. For some people, their background precludes them from even coming to the Lord. And maybe you come from a pretty rough family line. To you, respectfully, I say, so what? So did Jesus. He came from a rough line as well. Maybe you've done some things in your past that you're pretty embarrassed about or ashamed about today. Maybe you've convinced yourself that God could never work through a person like you because of those things. Well, I would remind you that the genealogy of Jesus includes murderers and adulterers and prostitutes and polytheists. You see, Jesus can and will work through your life. And He'll work in your life as well. So these words should never really enter into your thinking. And if they do, then you just got to think right thoughts, quite frankly. You have to tell yourself truth. But these words, you know, the Lord can't use my life should never come out of your mouth. And really never even enter into your heart because it's not true. Think of these guys that He did use to be a part of the family line of the Messiah. So stop wrestling with kind of that fact and submit to God's grace. Let God use your life as a conduit of His grace. Well, let me finish up the, the section. It said, verse 12, After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Shaltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azur, Azur the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim. And Akim the father of Iliad, Iliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. One point, there's some names there. You can look up who they are and what they've done as well. But a point that I want to draw your attention to Notice how in verse 16, sort of the formula changes. So prior to verse 16, we kept reading, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. But then in verse 16, suddenly it says, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So everything sort of switches there. It transitions there. And I'm going to spend more time looking at the significance of that next week. But I do want to quickly point this out now. Because though this is the genealogy of Joseph, 
Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus is not the biological son of Joseph, but rather that he's the biological son of Mary who is married to Joseph. I think that's relatively clear in the English, but in the Greek, I think it becomes definitively clear. And here's the point that I want to make to you. If you look there in my version, I don't know how you have it in yours, but it says, of whom Jesus was born. That word whom, it's it's translated from a Greek word which is both singular and feminine. And so, you know, I could say something like, oh yeah, that's Greg and Robin's kid. And the idea, that's my wife, that's the idea that the two of us had this baby here. And so you could look at this and it says, oh yeah, Joseph and Mary of whom they had Jesus. And you would think it's talking about Joseph and Mary, but it's a singular word, which means it's only applying back to one of those two people there. And it's a feminine form of the singular word, which means it's only referring back to the feminine one of the two that are listed there. This is Matthew's clear way of saying that Jesus is not of the bloodline of Joseph. That he's of the legal line of Joseph, but not of the bloodline of Joseph. And it's an indicator to us of the virgin birth of Christ. And he's going to develop that more so, and we'll look at that more so as we move into next week's study. Final verse, verse 17, So all the generations... From Abraham to David were 14, from David to the deportation, 14, and from the deportation of Babylon to Babylon to Christ, 14. And so there you have it, the royal line of the one that Matthew is going to go on to prove is God's anointed Messiah. Again, certainly not perfect people, and not a perfect line of people, but it is a line of people, no less. Fallen, messed up, stained people, that God chose to work through to accomplish His purposes. And doesn't that describe us? Fallen, messed up, stained people that God wants to accomplish His purposes through. And that's our prayer. Let's go before the Lord. Father, even just saying that blows our mind. Lord, I think some of us, we'd probably say, Lord, there's probably somebody better you could work through than me. And the reality is, Lord, I know that's true. But God, You choose to work through fallen individuals. I think it brings You even more glory. And so, Father, we make ourselves available. Lord, I think of Isaiah. Who knew that he was a wicked, fallen sinner? But he says, well, here I am, Lord. Use me. And so, Father, we do that. And Lord, I I just pray that in this first study, that sort of this sense of the wonder of who You are would come out during this time, Lord. That... You would cause our hearts to be enlarged so that we can receive more of who You are and what You want to do. And, and the majesty of God in the flesh would overwhelm us, our hearts and our minds, Lord. Father, we are praying Lord, that You would open our eyes to see these things in a fresh and in a new way. And Father, we pray for those that are going to come in and come out. Lord, people that we think about we're going to invite. Lord, that they would see, regardless of their past, regardless of their background, that there is a Savior that came to give His life on their behalf that loves them. And Lord, we're praying for an outpouring of Your Spirit that many might come to know the Savior as a a result of our times together here studying Your Word. And we believe that's a prayer according to Your will. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.